ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. When I was at uni, one of my jobs was as a behavioural therapist for a little boy who was autistic. I worked as part of a team that was supervised by a psychologist to help him learn behaviours that would make it easier to get by in the world as he grew up. He really was a delight to work with, and I've been thinking about him this week, Norman, while I've been working on one of the stories we have coming up today. He got diagnosed really young and had that early intervention. But what about people who make it to adulthood and wonder if they're autistic? I've been speaking with someone who's had that exact experience and a psychologist in the area about why an adult diagnosis can be really valuable. It's a huge and important issue and it relates to other mental health issues that go along with it, such as anxiety and depression. And also we've got an exclusive investigation on nutrition and food in early childhood education and care services in Australia. Really an appalling story. It's really quite heartbreaking. Uh, but first, Norman, a little bit of health news this week. And I want to travel us over to the UK because there's been a bit in health news over there. Of course, there was the big news earlier this week about the king. He'd had a prostate examination or a surgery to do with his prostate some time ago. And it's since been revealed that he has been diagnosed with an unrelated form of cancer. Yes, it was reported he went in to have his benign prostatic hypertrophy, in other words, an enlarged prostate treated, and that they came and said afterwards that he diagnosed with cancer, not prostate, um, which is what you might have expected. And somebody else said that it was early. Um, I think that Richie Sunak, the Prime Minister, said that it was, they came out and saying that they discovered it. Early. So, I mean, there's two issues, I think, that arise here, don't you think? One is the prostate itself. Yeah, I think I know that for sure that there's been a surge in Google um, searches around prostate health and there's been a surge in people getting their prostates checked. Yeah. So here's just a word of warning. We've covered this hugely on the health report over the years. Men should know that if they decide they're going to have a prostate-specific antigen test, that's the blood test, it's not a blood test for prostate cancer. It's a blood test that is raised when you have an enlarged prostate that could be benignly enlarged. And it also can be raised if you've got prostate cancer. The trouble is it's not very specific. And you've got to understand what the implications are of a positive test, because a positive test means your doctor's really forced to find out whether or not you've got prostate cancer. And a lot of the prostate cancers that are discovered with a PSA test are ones that will, would never kill you. They were not, they're not going to progress. Um, we are getting better at that. The urologists are getting better at that. They're not jumping in and operating quickly. And, um, and the state of the art with, with urologists is that they follow you closely and they biopsy you based on an MRI scan. That's the way it should be done of the prostate gland. And it's Australian research that's actually elucidated a lot of the benefits of doing MRI scans. So that's just a little bit of a caveat there is that you're risking over-treatment by having your PSA done. But as long as you know what you're doing and you're prepared for surveillance, then, uh, then you should be minimising the risks of that. But then the other question is, I suppose, is what else could he have? Well, I was going to ask you that, and I know that you'll say that you couldn't possibly speculate, but then you will. Well, all you can say is, well, what, what went on there? Well, one is that uh, if you're going to treat benign prostatic hypertrophy, then you go in with a cystoscope, so that's an endoscopy, and um, they might have looked in the bladder and seen a tumour in the bladder and you know, biopsied that and found that it was malignant. 
Um, they might have done an MRI scan of his prostate and found that there's something else going on in the pelvis. That, and the most common thing would be a colon cancer that they might have picked up by accident. In fact, it goes to your story of a couple of weeks ago on incidentalomas, um, finding an incidental finding when you're scanning for other reasons. And that may be what they've done there. Or they've done a chest X-ray before he gets his anaesthetic and they've found something in his lungs. Who knows? But um, it's likely that it is, in fact, what you talked about on the health report a couple of weeks ago, which is an incidental OMA. Mm. Well, let's stay with the UK figureheads and talk about Rishi Sunak, who you mentioned before, the British PM, because he's revealed that he is a, a faster, an intermittent faster. He fasts for 36 hours a week. Um, bring us up to speed again on intermittent fasting. It's something that we've talked about quite a lot over the years. It is. So the story with intermittent fasting is, and there's various ways of doing it. One is the 5-2, that's the one that Michael Mosley promotes, which is five days of a normal diet, two days on roughly 500 calories a day. So it's not quite a full no-calorie fast. It's a very low-calorie, two very low-calorie days. Other variants on that are 16-8, so 16 hours of the, your day are spent um, not eating, uh, eight hours, and then you've got eight hours where you eat food. Um, Fourteen ten is the other one. Whichever way you cut it, um, intermittent fasting does is supposed to do two things. One is lose weight. Well, you do lose weight on on intermittent fasting as long as you don't go too mad on your days off. But it it do, you does lose you do lose an effect of it. We've had uh, Luigi Fontana from Sydney University on talking about this. Is that the body adjusts and the calorie gap from the intermittent fasting narrows because your body adjusts to the fasting and burns fewer calories at rest, which is why you've actually got to exercise a lot when you're doing intermittent fasting so that you maintain that calorie gap. Um, the other thing that's supposed to happen is that you get metabolic stress and therefore your metabolism becomes healthier so that you're less likely to develop type 2 diabetes and maybe your growth hormones, uh, sorry, the cellular growth hormones go down and therefore you're less likely to develop cancer or if you've got cancer, it grows more slowly. And again, Luigi Fontana's work has suggested that that's really only true depending on what you eat on your days on or in your eight hours or whatever it is. If you're eating rubbish, you may not get the um, metabolic benefits of fasting. Um, but if you eat a Mediterranean-style, highly diverse diet with not much red meat, then you may well get, you're more likely to get the metabolic benefits in addition to the weight loss. Well, I personally fast every single night while I'm asleep. Me too. Me too. <laughs> I fast between meals. And this is the health board. If you cast your mind back to the time before COVID, and then tragically during COVID, there was one story after another about huge failures in quality and safety in residential aged care, and how the standards which were supposed to ensure a good level of care were either inadequate, or the body which was supposed to monitor those standards was simply not doing its job. Well, some of this may be happening under our noses to our youngest children. New research suggests there are serious deficiencies in many childcare centres which could be profoundly affecting kids' development and that, breathtakingly, there are insufficient standards to hold these centres to account. The research was into the quality of nutrition and food given in early childhood education and care, particularly long-day care. Kids are going hungry, being fed low-quality food, and in some centres, childcare workers educators, are giving kids their own food. It also helps to explain why kids' behaviour deteriorates and becomes harder to manage from morning through to the afternoons. 
Kids may be hungry, and perhaps the educators are too. Researchers have also found that parents can't necessarily believe that the menus pinned to the notice board are actually what their children are being given. The research comes from the Child Development Education and Care Group at the Queensland Brain Institute. Its group leader is Professor Karen Thorpe. We're from the Queensland Brain Institute and brains don't function without food. And we invest a lot of money in early childhood education and care. We want children to be able to learn. And quite simply, brains don't work on no fuel. And there are a lot of things about micronutrients that affect ongoing brain development. And we are talking about the first five years of life. It's the time when we have the most rapid and extensive brain development that set the foundations for ongoing life. One of the early studies which raised alarm bells was a survey of 1,700 early childhood education and care services in Queensland, looking at whether they provided meals compared to the centre's location and area of disadvantage. We found two things about areas. The more distant you are, so the remote or regional you are, the less likely you are to have food provision in your early education and care service. And when we look at social disadvantage, the more disadvantaged your community that you live in and the place where your childcare centre is situated, the more likely you are not to have food provision or alternatively, another way of saying that is parents are required to bring food from home. And these are the families least able to provide food and many are living in circumstances of food insecurity. Professor Karen Thorpe. Remember... These are centres where kids, from the age of a few months to when they start school, can be spending most of their days and receiving most of their nutrition. Another researcher in Karen's group, Dr Bonnie Serrell, wanted to see what was going on in much more detail. Bonnie looked at metropolitan childcare centres, investigating the quality of food and the mealtime environment, comparing centres which provided food versus centres where the parents sent in food with their children each day. We were most concerned about a lack of food. Across the board, the quality of the food was low. The meals were not aligned with the Australian Dietary Guidelines. And even more concerning, there wasn't enough food, particularly in the centres where parents had to provide food from home. And in the centres that were experiencing the highest levels of disadvantage, the children in these centres were actually arriving hungry And the educators were asking children not to eat too much food at once to make sure their food lasted throughout the whole day. Gosh, so a hungry child's coming in, the educator, the childcare worker is anxious because there's a limit to the food in their lunchbox if indeed there is any food. And so hold on because we want to spread it out throughout the day. Yes, and educators had really high levels of concern about this and we witnessed educators giving their own food to children. They are low-income workers and work that we've done on the workforce suggests, particularly if they don't live with their parents, younger people, or they don't have a spouse, that they're living under extreme financial stress. So if they're living under extreme financial stress, that will automatically indicate to us that there will be some stress around food security. So yes, we have educators who are giving away their own food when in fact they themselves might be living under those pressures of food insecurity. Karen Thorpe. And when Bonnie Searle looked at centres which actually provided food, the picture wasn't that different. 
Again, the quality across the board was was not in line with Australian dietary guidelines. Again, there wasn't enough food, particularly when the food was pre-plated. And there was definitely a lack of vegetables and a lack of meat or protein sources in the meals. There was also a worrying pattern of behaviour through the day, which may well have been linked to food. We did look at the emotional interactions between teachers and children, and that included the level of conflict. So in the centres that were experiencing the highest levels of disadvantage, we found that the quality of those emotional interactions were lower and that the conflict actually increased across the day. So if you had both hungry educators and hungry kids, it's not a good combination? Definitely not. And we did see quite high levels of stress across the board as well. Obviously, that's not ideal. And we know that if we give children choices to make with boundaries, that that sets up good patterns of eating and food choices throughout life. But beyond that, the emotional environment in early education and care is very, very important. Our own data suggests that it is that that predicts children's outcomes, not only as they enter school, but right through to their secondary school years. So we've done some big analyses looking at that. You do learn a lot in mealtimes. And if the discussion is eat this, eat that, save that for later, we would call something like a mealtime or a sleep time a barometer event. In services that are very high quality, what we would see is those really good interactions in mealtimes. They don't see mealtimes as outside the curriculum. But in some services, that isn't what we see. It's driven by some of the stresses that sit around them. Competition between childcare centres makes a difference, but not necessarily in the quality of food. What the Queensland Brain Institute work has found is that if one centre offers food, others in the same market will follow. But that may create other issues as they keep costs down. Karen Thorpe again. The suggestion we have from our larger scale study is that in some services, food is provided, but it's at the cost of other provisions. Such as? Such as levels of staffing. If you're going to provide good food, you have fewer staff on. You have things like longer sleep rest times so that you can reduce your staffing and you reduce the staffing levels to the minimum. Karen, I find this almost heartbreaking to talk about because our most disadvantaged kids, and it's not just in rural areas, it's in metropolitan areas, coming into what should be a place of safety and nurturing and preparation for life are perpetuating the disadvantage. Yes, and it's interesting that the recent reports, the ACCC report and the interim report from the Productivity Commission, in fact, food provision is sort of silent in those reports. It is heartbreaking and it is a double jeopardy for disadvantaged kids. We've got school programs to provide meals and, of course, in other countries in the world there are school dinners provided to ensure that children have A, access to sufficient calories but B, to nutritious foods. But we don't seem to think about those first five years where children are in early education and care which is is arguably the most important time because of the brain development. And it is heartbreaking that we are perpetuating poverty in some ways because it doesn't matter how good a quality the service is. If children are hungry, you don't learn. This is a national problem. The United Workers' Union, which represents educators in the early childhood education and care sector, did a survey which made similar findings. Helen Gibbons is the UWU's Executive Director of Early Childhood. 
it's a startling reminder that the early education system that we've got in this country doesn't really put children at the centre of it. This is a system that all sorts of things get in the way of providing best quality environments for little children, including best quality nutrition for little children. What we found was that the system for providing meals for little children in long daycare centres isn't really set up to make sure that those children are getting all the nutrition that they need. It's really set up around profit and what's affordable for those services, what's easy to make, what they can manage. And sometimes it's set up about incentivizing parents to send the children to the centre. What do you mean by incentivizing? We have a lot of centres, particularly where it's a pretty fierce marker in the suburbs. Centres will advertise that they're providing food for the children who attend their services rather than parents having to provide food. And that sounds great, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's high-quality food. It doesn't necessarily mean that the centre has set aside a sufficient budget or a sufficient number of people to make that food. They're really using it as a marketing exercise. And so that's why you end up in the position where some children are growing hungry or they're not having high-quality food and educators are driven to supplement it. Tamika Hicks has 23 years' experience as an educator and owner of early childhood education and care centres. And for her, much of this rings true, claiming to have seen the good, the bad and the ugly. The bad is where children are just income earners, where children are fed poor food that is low cost, high filling, high carbs, saturated fats. Children still getting a lot of processed foods, high in salt, meals being filled with a lot of carbs like rice, pasta, not a lot of protein, very minimal fruit being provided. And children who may be fussy eaters because Let's face it, there are a lot of children out there that are fussy eaters that are getting given crackers and things that don't meet the requirements that they need for food during the day because the centre just won't provide it. And I've seen a lot of children just going without, then their behaviour spikes. What happens when their behaviour spikes? Then they get labelled for different things because of their behaviours instead of taking a holistic look at what nutrition's been provided during the day in terms of having an effect on children's behaviour, then educators are getting burnout because they're dealing with different behaviours at the end of the day and it's a vicious cycle and, it, you know, that's the ugly for me. We'll come to the good in a minute. But this raises huge issues for parents because the research suggests that in some centres you can't necessarily rely on the menus that the centre says it's giving to the kids. Helen Gibbons of the United Workers' Union again. When we did our research, we asked educators exactly that question and they said that it was routinely not what children were receiving. They were routinely not getting what was on the published menu and instead getting a much more simplified meal of a significant amount of rice or a significant amount of pasta. So things that really kind of pad out a meal and pad it out in a reasonably cheap way rather than loading up on vegetables and things that might provide more nutritional value to children. It's hard to know how much money each early childhood centre allocates to food. You hear ranges from under a dollar a day per child to over five dollars. Helen Gibbons believes this problem of inadequate food 
is focused on the for-profit sector. We've consistently found that poor menus and food provision is much more significant problem in the for-profit sector than the not-for-profit sector. Now, there's always grey areas around the edge. There's there's always some for-profit providers who do a great job and some not-for-profit providers who do a terrible job. But on the whole, we've found that the profit motive significantly squeezes costs across the board in a long daycare centre and food and menu provision is one of those costs. It doesn't have to be this way. There are examples of where it's done well. Bonnie Searle of the Queensland Brain Institute. I have personally visited a group of childcare centres that have a dietitian full-time. They have a commercial kitchen with a chef and kitchen staff and they produce the most beautiful food. It can be done, but it takes the owner to really be invested and care about food and see food as really important and actually invest money into the whole process. And this was a group of centres, so I assume that having a commercial kitchen actually made a lot of financial sense as well. Why is this allowed to happen, you might ask? Well, the early childhood education and care sector has a set of quality standards against which they're judged. Karen Thorpe believes they're inadequate when it comes to food and nutrition. The national quality standards for early education and care in quality area two, it's about child health and safety, it does specify that healthy food should be promoted. It doesn't require any provision of food in services. So at the moment, there isn't any requirement for any service to provide food. So even if a, an inspector comes in, has a look and find, looks at the menu or looks at the food and finds it's poor... There's no penalty for the childcare centre? Not really, no, because it doesn't fit into any of the items in the quality standard that they are inspecting. In the analysis, we saw lots of emphasis on health and safety. So the temperature of food, how food was handled with gloves, if children with allergies were catered for, and all this is incredibly important. But there was no emphasis on the actual food that was provided. Karen Thorpe believes there are straightforward solutions that could help quite quickly. We have to ensure that all children from birth to five attending early education and care have adequate food and adequate nutrition in their day, remembering that some children can be in those services between 10 and 12 hours and that in the first five years or 2,000 days, children can spend 10,000 hours in long-day care settings. There should be supply-side funding, at least to those services that are in the most disadvantaged areas, and Australia has a very good database in which we can indicate which services there are. If we can't do it for all, we can at least do it for our most disadvantaged. The second is that we need to ensure that our national quality framework and these quality standards against which services are rated look at the right things. They look at not whether children get lots of water or talk about healthy food so much as whether they are actually providing the food. And that might extend beyond looking at menus because we go into services and observe and sometimes we will see menus that look very healthy, but that is not what the children eat. Otherwise, says Professor Thorpe, this is cementing the disadvantage gap when children are laying down the development that will last their lifetime. Food in childcare is far more than just a nice-to-have. We are setting up patterns in which some children have more than others. And to give you an anecdote, we have services that we go into where not only children have a chef who provides individual meals, 
but we have a chef providing meals for parents at the end of the day to take home or a croissant and coffee to take with them as they go. And we have other services that we attend in which we see children desperate to eat when they get there because they're hungry, not being able to eat because they've got to eke out food during the day. So there are huge contrasts in what is happening in services and the disparity between our most advantaged and our most disadvantaged is huge. And when we put into the mix that food is a basic right, but it's also a basic need for brain development, we are indeed, instead of utilising the huge developmental opportunity that early education and care provides, if we don't provide food, we're sort of scuppering ourselves right at the beginning. Laureate Professor Karen Thorpe of the Queensland Brain Institute. Not an easy story to tell. No, I think the word you used in there was heartbreaking and that's absolutely how I felt just thinking about my own kids and how vulnerable they are when they're so little. Yeah, well, we're waiting on government responses to a few things on early childhood because they've made some promises on increasing services for early childhood education. Um, And... I, you know, there are two reports. One is the ACCC, the Australian Competition Consumer Commission, which looked into pricing supply of early childhood services. It didn't mention this area much at all. In fact, not at all. Then the Productivity Commission is looking at early childhood uh, education and care too, and it put out an interim report. And in fact, submissions are closing quite soon. And um, and again, they've not made any uh, mention of it yet, at least in their interim report. So we asked the Minister for Early Childhood, Anne Ali, for a response. Incidentally, Anne Ali comes from Western Australia, and Western Australia is the other state where very similar findings have been made about early childhood education and care and nutrition. Anyway, a spokesperson got back to us, and basically they said, where services choose to provide food, there are requirements, they say, under the National Quality Framework to ensure it's nutritious and adequate in quantity. That was not necessarily what was said in the story, but that's what the spokesperson is saying. The national regulations require services that choose to provide food to give regard to the dietary requirements of individual children, a child's growth and development, and needs in any specific cultural, religious or health requirements. And uh, they're supposed to have policies and procedures relating to nutrition and dietary requirements monitored by state and territory regulatory authorities. And then goes on to say that they will consider the final recommendations of the Productivity Commission inquiry and the future of the early learning system as we chart, and I'm quoting, a course to universal early childhood education and care. And we'll have the complete um, response on our website. It is hard to sort of put this onto one sector, though, when really it's a symptom of a really bigger problem around food insecurity in Australia. That's right. But in this sector, as uh, Karen Thorpe indicated, you could just be very targeted for kids who are coming into early childhood education and care rather than solving the problem as a whole, which is about massive disadvantage, particularly in this time of inflation and people finding cost of living increases and hard to afford food in many situations. In this case, if you targeted subsidies, as Karen Thorpe's argument, two areas of disadvantage, and we've got very good data now 
on areas of disadvantage when it comes to childhood development. We've got things like the Australian Early Development Index, which shows where you've got, which shows by postcode and suburb where you've actually got uh, disadvantage in terms of or risk in terms of early development. So you could actually just target it there and you could call it a Band-Aid, but it's actually targeting services and food to kids who, um, who need it most. Yeah, and at such a crucial developmental age. You're with The Health Report. Autism is on the rise in Australia, and we think of it as a diagnosis people are most likely to get in childhood because it overwhelmingly is, but diagnoses are also trending up in adults. Yeah, I mean, and it's real. I think it's recognition that people are recognising autism spectrum disorder, and it's you know, a serious issue. Um, you shouldn't call it mild or severe. It's just that people have different impairments from it and they need to be dealt with, whether you're an adult or a child. And when it's at the more impaired end, you've got to intervene early. And of course, in children, particularly those who are impaired by their behaviours, early intervention is really important. Totally. But what about people who don't get diagnosed as kids? Autism is on a spectrum. And for people who have may, been, may have been able to get through school and into the workforce, as adults, there can still be a real desire to understand themselves. I've been talking to someone who's feeling this at the moment. I hyper-focus on things to the exclusion of all other things. So uh, let's say I'm working on some electronics and I might be just on the floor hunched over and uh, hours will go by and I realise that, you know, I haven't had dinner and the, the house is now 10 degrees and I'm sort of freezing to death. <laughs> and the only thing that snapped me out of it is I'm freezing to death and I can't understand why I can't hold the electronics still anymore. <laughs> I always assumed everybody sort of got lost in focus like that, but they don't. This is Jeremy Krukel. He lives in a small town in regional New South Wales, but as you may have guessed from the accent, grew up in Canada. I just felt always sort of a little bit different in social situations, and I still have difficulties reading some social situations. Recently, he's been wondering whether that something a little bit different might be autism. At the time, I was watching this show called The Good Doctor, which you might be familiar with, and mm -hmm. it's an autistic surgeon. Some things that the doctor was doing where I was just like, I don't know why people got upset when he did this thing. And I don't know why people reacted that way, like he was doing the right thing. So as time has gone by, I am finding now that, geez, it would be nice to have a little bit more understanding of myself and how maybe I react to things. It would be interesting to have more tools to sort of navigate my way through because not everyone's thinking the same way I'm thinking, if that makes sense. Jeremy's not the only person to get to adulthood and wonder whether they're autistic. In the past decade or two, there's been a sharp trend upward in autism diagnoses in all age groups, including adults, according to the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare. There are lots of different benefits. Um, really understanding yourself and perhaps, you know, why things have been more difficult, why you struggled to fit in can be so validating and affirming for people. Dr Tamara May is a clinical psychologist and research affiliate at Monash University. For a lot of folks with autism um, who haven't been picked up in childhood or adolescence, often it's not until they go through a period of burnout or crisis and often they'll get diagnosed with other things like anxiety and depression. And so, yeah, that preventative piece doesn't happen for them. And so when they get an adult diagnosis, it can make a lot of sense. There's a lot more awareness of what autism is these days than there used to be, but a definition is tricky. It's a brain difference. Autistic people's brains think and process information differently, and they socialise and communicate differently to non-autistic people. You've probably heard that autism exists on a spectrum. 
That means these differences are more pronounced in some people than in others. For some on the spectrum, this makes the world particularly hard to navigate. But also, because autism is on a spectrum, it can be really difficult to diagnose. There are three different levels of severity for autism. Level 1, 2 and 3, and 3 is the most severe in terms of the functional impact. But there's also very little guidance in our diagnostic and statistical manual which we use to make these assessments. So it often comes down to clinical judgment about the level of functional impact on a person's life. Can they work? Can they function socially? How much care and support do they need in their lives? Once that diagnosis comes, what are the sorts of changes that people make or the sort of improvements in quality of life that people typically see? One of the big ones is finally to stop blaming yourself for being defective or bad or not good enough. You understand that you have a different neurotype. Your brain works differently and you need your environment and the world around you set up a bit differently so that you can thrive. So it can lead to this acceptance of yourself, you know, growing self-confidence, self-awareness. And then you can start to change things around you. Like maybe your job needs to be changed a little bit. Maybe you need adjustments or accommodations. Maybe you need to work part-time or even change to a job that's more suitable to your strengths. So it's all about understanding what your strengths are and then structuring your life around that. A year or so ago, Jeremy decided to look into his suspicion that he was autistic and he booked an appointment with his local GP. And I was sort of met with this wall of like, don't be ridiculous. You know, I expressed these things and I explained sort of why. And it seemed just like, no, I don't think that's realistic. Like you're here talking to me about it. That's not what an autistic person would do. And I'm kind of like, well, well I don't know if it's what an autistic person, like what, what is that? still a bit tricky for adults to find the right clinician to get diagnoses. There's still a lot of education that needs to happen in sort of the primary health care system like GPs, etc. Because often they are not fully aware of how autism might present in adults and also the process of, you know, what to do next. But Dr Tamara May says it is getting better. Certainly in, in the last couple of years, I'm seeing a lot more psychologists who are gaining experience in this space and are offering autism assessments and often by telehealth now as well. So there is more access, but it's just slowly sort of filtering through and people slowly becoming aware of this, including GPs and the like, who are usually the first point of contact for folks when they suspect they might have something like autism going on. So yeah, getting that diagnosis as an adult can be helpful for an individual. But it's not just them that benefits. A lot of these folks who have undiagnosed adult autism really struggle in their day-to-day life. There's um, an impact to their families, to their productivity. Often they're not able to work. They have to take periods of sick leave. Often they have secondary mental health and physical conditions, which severely impacts on them and uh, their families. So I think there is so much value in in funding um, autism assessments, for example, and getting people the support they need because then they can work productively to their ability, et cetera, and, you know, have less burden ultimately on the mental health system because they're not feeling depressed and anxious anymore because they know what's going on and they're getting support for it. Then there can be a flip side. There can also be a real period of grief. Um, They haven't got support in their younger years and it's led to a lot of difficulties, a lot of secondary mental health problems, a lot of struggle just with functioning and trying to, you know, achieve like neurotypical folks and finding that they struggle with that. Right. You're sort of regretting the time that you could have had if that diagnosis had come earlier. Yeah, exactly. If they've got 
support and care and understood themselves, they could have set up their life so that they really thrived. To have to kind of learn that later in your life and then change things up is really difficult, but a really important and helpful process for people to go through so that they can, you know, not stop struggling day to day with just coping with being in the world. What about when someone's coming to you looking for a diagnosis and actually it's not your opinion that it, it is autism? That's really tricky, but usually that emerges in, in the assessment sessions. We go through the different um, diagnostic criteria for autism, the different traits and symptoms that folks might have. And I will talk it through. Um, you know, it appears like you might not have these kinds of difficulties um, and then try and work on what else might be going on for the person. A lot of folks will have what we might call subclinical traits of autism where they don't quite meet the criteria. They might have two of the three social communication differences, for example. And it's a case of just trying to be open and working through that with a person and exploring what else might be going on for them. For Jeremy, after that false start with his local GP, he's on the fence about where to go next. Even exploring the idea that he might be autistic has helped him understand himself better and make adjustments that have improved his life and his relationships. But he's not ready yet to give up on the idea of a formal diagnosis, whether that's yes, you're autistic, or no, you're not. And yes, I have done a little bit of research on the internet, but I don't want to be one of those people that's labeled as they've done research on the internet. Yeah, it would just be helpful if there were other tools. I'm sure there's a heap of things I'm missing. I know I'm missing facial expressions, but I didn't realize how many I'm missing. You know, I got glasses in my early teens and I didn't realize, I assumed everybody saw the way I saw, but I don't have any reference point until someone gave me an eye test and put some glasses on me. And I was like, whoa. I can see so much better now. And they're like, well, this is what everybody sees. And I was like, oh, geez. Okay, well, now I know. Um, so I feel like it's kind of going to be that sort of situation if it's the go. And that's what I'm sort of learning along the way, I suppose, whether it's autism or not. I'm definitely missing a lot of social cues, a lot of facial expressions and things like that. So that's Jeremy Krukel. And we also heard from Dr. Tamara May, a clinical psychologist and research affiliate at Monash University. And Norman, I found Jeremy because he got in touch after an episode of What's That Rash? Really? Yeah, well, What's That Rash? Where will we answer your questions? But I mean, just on, on the autism spectrum story, people think it's a spectrum. It goes from mild to severe, but it's a spectrum in terms of the sort of symptoms that people get. And some symptoms can be quite disabling, even though to all intents and purposes, you might miss the fact that some people are on the spectrum. And psychiatrists and psychologists who are seeing people with anxiety and depression, what might sit under that is actually a, a spectrum disorder such as ADHD or indeed autism spectrum producing the stresses and strains and stigma that they produce. Yeah, and as I was speaking to people for this story on background, a real strong message that I got is that we shouldn't be waiting for people to be broken before we sort of help them understand themselves and move forward, which is what happens is that people are um, on the spectrum who are kind of struggling with this are doing so much work to mask their um, autistic traits that it takes a mental toll on them. So acting early is good. So yes, that was a story inspired by our other podcast, What's That Rash? And this week on that show, we've been talking about something a little more controversial than coffee consumption. We're talking chiropractors. Yes, in the words, and I say this carefully, the words of our question asker, are they charlatans? To which I say, well, you're going to have to listen to What's That Rash to find out what I say. <laughs> and to do that, all you need to do is search What's That Rash in the ABC Listen app and make sure you hit follow 
Follow The Health Report while you're in the neighbourhood if you're not already following us. Yeah, subscribe to The Health Report and we'll see you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.